you would bow your heads with me. Father, we are so thankful that you're a God who loves. In fact, you're not just a God who loves, but a God who is love. So part your love, your comfort, your presence on the Mills family, the Renshaw and Kushner families as, as they grieve the loss of Larry and, and Barb and, and as we grieve. Thank you, God, that for you, love is not merely something you do, but it's who you are. To be a God who is love and to be the very source of love for all eternity. You've existed in relationship, in a relationship of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving one another Holy and perfectly. What a joy it is for us to know that even though we rejected that love, you sent Jesus to do the most loving thing possible, which was to die for us. And in that way, to win us back to yourself, to make us once again lovers of God. And we do love you, Lord. Father, we love you. Son, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Triune God. And And we know we love you because we've been loved by you. And we give thanks that this rich and pure love never began and will never end. It's measureless. It's strong. It'll it'll endure from age to age. And so thank you, God, for being who you are. Thank you for being kind and good and gracious and patient and merciful and forgiving. You're all that and so much more. And we could spend all morning pondering all that you are and all that you've done. We could spend all week recounting it and we wouldn't come close to reaching the end. And so we give thanks and we praise you. No wonder we love to gather here. No wonder we love to sing praises to your name. No wonder we delight in opening your word and hearing you speak. No wonder we can't wait to pour out our hearts to you in prayer. What a great God you are. You alone are worthy of our worship. And so, Father, we thank you for all the ways you've expressed your goodness to us. We give thanks, Father, that you've forgiven us for every sin. We give thanks that you've provided for every need. You became human to serve us in ways we don't deserve. You've given us a church family where we can grow in your grace and truth together. Without you, we lack all good things, but with you, we lack no good thing. If we only have you, we're rich beyond measure. The greatest treasures of this world are nothing, nothing compared to you. And so, Father, we long to be the people and for this to be the church that shows the world Jesus Christ in every moment. We yearn for his loving, humble service to be fully seen and experienced in us and through us. We ask this so that all those who are weary and need rest, all those who mourn and need comfort, all those who are lost and need direction, all those who feel worthless and need to discover their true worth in you, all who understand that they have sinned before you and wonder if you still care about them, we pray this so that they might know you. We pray this morning that all of us here would be constantly aware of our deep need for you. Help us, Lord, to be aware that you are big enough and strong enough and powerful enough and wise enough to meet our every need. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's people said, Amen.
Brothers and sisters, if you would open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. I know this is a familiar verse, but hear it again as if you'd never heard it before. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word of the Lord. And... Um, I don't know if if you've got it back there. We have a memory verse. It's in your bulletins at the bottom. And if you would join with me in saying this. From Psalm 25, 8 and 9. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs the sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. And teaches the humble his way. The address? All right. Let's pray. Almighty God, we continue to marvel at how different your wisdom is from ours. Because we never would have dreamed up, we never would have imagined that you would have entered the world in the way we're about to talk about, and that you would have lived such a profoundly different life from ours. So God, we pray now that as we open your word, that your spirit would open us to it so that your truth might live in us, so that your grace might be seen in us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, Amen. It's a privilege to be here this morning and to be able to cover for Dave. And uh, we give thanks. We give thanks that even in the midst of loss, as Cheryl knows, God is with us. God is present. So we want to talk about God's presence this morning. I mean, we often think about Christmas as a season of warm, intimate fellowship with families and friends. We think about it as a time of of good food, of good fellowship, of hearth, of home, of joy. Not so for Jesus. Luke recounts the humility of Jesus' arrival in our world. Imagine the Son of God, co-possessor of all that is, gave it all up, took on flesh, and came to live among us. He didn't come as a king in all of his glory a warrior in all of his strength, a sage in the mature brilliance of his wisdom, Jesus appeared among us as an infant. Thanks to Caesar Augustus' decree, 
while Quirinius was governor of Syria, Joseph and Mary, with Mary nine months pregnant, had to travel from Nazareth in the north of the country to Bethlehem, southeast of Jerusalem. They did so in the cold of a Middle Eastern winter. Jesus, the predicted Messiah, is revealed in a very particular circumstance at a very particular moment in time. Herod the Great occupies a fortress and palace of power and might. The Herodian and Bethlehem literally sits in the shadow of the Herodian. Although he's the ruler of the Jews, Herod, he's, he's not Jewish, he's of Idumean descent. And he's occupying the Herodian, one of many fortress palaces he constructed. He lived there seasonally in great luxury. Meanwhile, the true King Jesus is born in the most humble circumstances. Now, once in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph find lodging with distant relatives in a house whose guest room was already filled with other descendants of the line of David. Contrary to tradition, Jesus is not born in a stable or barn as we think of them. But in the main living space of the host family, in the lowest section of the house, where goats and donkeys might be stable. You can still see houses constructed in this manner today. And, and so imagine that you enter literally through the stable, which is on this level, a step up, right, is the main living area. A step up again or up steps into an upper room is the guest room, right? There's no room in the guest room. Um, Jesus has to be born with distant relatives in the stable area of the home. It's the main area is the space that much of family life would occupy. Cooking, eating, sleeping, living. Um, now, the Greek word used in the phrase, there's no room in the inn, there was no room in the inn. We imagine a commercial building with multiple guest rooms. But the Greek word used, katalima, doesn't refer to a room in an inn, but a space in the place, right? A room in the house, the guest room. So it wasn't an inn as we know them, but a humble private residence. There's no space in the guest room for Mary, Joseph, and the baby that was coming. And you can see an echo of this in 1 Kings 17, 19, where Elijah the prophet stays in the guest room in the upper chamber belonging to the widow of Zarephath. But in this case, that space is occupied. If Luke had wanted us to think Mary and Joseph were turned away from an inn, sorry that I'm blowing up your, your, your nice Christmas story scenes, he would have used the word pandochion, which is the word Greek word for commercial inn. Matthew speaks of the Magi coming to see Jesus. He notes that they came to see him in an insula, a house, which confirms Luke's story, that the birth happened in a private home. Jesus was born in swaddling claws. You can see another account of that practice in Ezekiel 16, verse 4. He was laid in a manger, literally put to bed, which would have been... In the living room, right? Remember we said there was a step, the lower level where the animals were, a step up, and frequently it would have been hewn out of stone. The trough would have been hewn out of stone with straw 
and feed in it, right? Jesus would have been laid in that trough or maybe a wooden one built to feed the animals. That's the scene. Remember, animals were brought indoors for security. Um, Livestock are valuable. Theft was a real problem in that day. Um, And for the warmth provided to the house by their body heat. So Jesus' birth is witnessed by strangers in the simplest of dwellings without a doctor. It was nothing like we know or enjoy. Now, all of Israel looked for the coming of the Messiah. No one expected that God's anointed one would come to the world in this way. The the long-awaited king had shepherds for retainers, wise men from another culture to advise him, and no place to lay his head. I mean, what in the world is God thinking? I suspect that God knew it would take something radically different to capture our hearts and minds and spirits. And it doesn't get more different than this. The Bible says that Jesus' exaltation is grounded in his humiliation. Paul explains Jesus' greatness in this way. We just read it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John, in his gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, tells the Christmas story theologically. He helps us grasp the big picture of the Word made flesh. Deity chose humility for our sakes. How can we take in what it means for God to be born in such humble circumstances and laid in a manger? How can we comprehend why the one through whom and by whom everything was made, came to earth. How can we understand one who was infinitely rich yet became utterly poor out of love for us? Imagine what the decision to take on flesh and enter our world cost Jesus and cost his father. God knew we would reject and kill Jesus, and yet Jesus did this for us. Jesus made clear the depths of God's love for all of his lost children. After all, only an awesome and passionate love would serve and suffer in this way. Even in his birth, Jesus displayed a servant's heart and mind. In our world of upward mobility, Jesus displayed the life-changing importance of downward mobility. Paul takes us deep into Jesus' character. He makes sure we understand that Jesus' obedience to God the Father was complete. It was lovingly and joyfully given, and it went all the way to the point of death. Remember, the writer of Hebrews says this of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 2b and c. Jesus had to freely choose humility. A humility that included death on a cross without the promise of reward. Jesus was born knowing that he was to die and that the door to the future was closed. He had to give up all that was his and live trusting the Father's goodness and love with no guarantee that what was his would be returned to him. In each moment, he would need to look to the Holy Spirit 
for the gifts and power that had always been his so that he could fulfill the Father's request. And having lived in full relationship and partnership with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, he had to experience total separation from them for us. It was only in this way that he could completely know and fully experience the cost of our sin. Jesus had to act on our behalf without any view of gain, without a guarantee, right, that he would be restored to all that was his. He couldn't become human without paying the full price of our human rebellion against God and suffer the fruit of our distrust of God. No wonder Paul said, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, speaking of Adam, so by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Romans 5.19. So here's the hard truth. The fundamental nature of our sin is grounded in pride. We wanted to be like God. And so along with doubt, pride became the first fruits of our rebellion against God. Pride has been at the heart of our nature and a problem for us ever since. Um, And it's not by accident that the wisdom expressed in Proverbs cautions us against pride multiple times. Proverbs 29, 23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Proverbs 18, 12 says, Before destruction a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. So know that it's impossible for us as finite, limited creatures to become infinite, right? We wanted to be like God. Problem is, we can't get there. And so we're going to know frustration, great frustration in this life. In our world, a host of things humble us. Time and circumstances and inability and a lack of resources. Scripture says Jesus wasn't humbled. Neither Pilate nor Herod. Herod, nor the high priest Caiaphas, nor Roman legions brought Jesus down. Sin didn't unmask him. Death didn't defeat him. Jesus chose the humility of flesh becoming incarnate. And being in human form, he took humility even further. He became a servant. And if that wasn't enough, he chose the humility of death on a cross. It was the most degrading form of execution that the empire and the world knew at that time. I mean, consider it. I'm driven to my knees in all the love, the forgiveness, the strength of character, the trust in God's goodness and purposes that this reveals. Which is exactly why Paul was inspired to write, God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29. Our problem is it's incredibly easy for us to slip back into chasing self-interest and self-glory. This lesson has echoed among those who followed Christ in the long years since. Francis Quarles wrote... In, 18, uh, in 1635, in his book Emblems, the sufficiency of merit is to know that my merit is not sufficient. 
Almost 100 years later, William Law noted in his 1726 treatise, Christian Perfection, humility is nothing else than a right judgment of ourselves. Jesus willingly became what is low and despised in the world, even something or someone of no value to bring to nothing those things we think of as having great value. In so doing, he revealed the one true way home to God the Father and paid the price we couldn't. God's wisdom is so utterly different from that of our world, there's no comparison. David learned the hard way, the value of God's different wisdom. It prompted him to write, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. That's our memory verse. If you don't have a right assessment of yourself, it's going to be difficult to walk in God's way doing God's things, doing right things. Godly humility moves Jesus to counsel and model this truth for his disciples. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12. The Bible is pointed. We can't get there apart from Jesus Christ. But Paul Paul wants to make certain that we get it. So he goes deep theologically. He says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When Paul says, in the form of, morphe is the word in Greek, he wants us to understand that Jesus shared the nature, the character, the power, the purpose, the glory, and the majesty of God. There is nothing in the Godhead that wasn't his. It was all his. And yet he didn't count equality with God, a thing to be clung to possessively. Now, this obedient, humble servant nature that's beyond the wisdom of this world is exactly why Paul comments, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you hear it? Because Jesus was humbly obedient, becoming in form like us, and because he also humbly took on the form of a servant to the point of death on a cross, for this reason... God the Father not only raises Jesus up from death, not only exalts him, but super exalts him. Paul goes the extra mile to make sure that we understand that our Heavenly Father put Jesus in a class of one. Jesus stands alone, fully restored to the nature, power, position, and privilege which he had before his humiliation. It doesn't mean that God the Father has surrendered his position in the Godhead to Jesus. Instead, Paul tells us that Jesus has been completely restored to all that was his before the foundations of the world. As R. Kent Hughes says, Jesus' super exaltation is a gain in official glory, not an essential glory. So, how could Jesus live this way, serving with such deep humility? He lives for the approval of an audience of one. His desire is always 
to please God the Father. And this desire is grounded in the Father's love and approval of him. Remember what he said, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15:10. Do you hear it? Jesus as Jesus abides by the Father's love, doing the Father's will, so we too can live in Jesus' love as we do His will. And as we do that, we're abiding in the Father's will. Remember Jesus said, And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. John eight twenty nine. Jesus echoed this saying, Truly, truly I say to you, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John 5.19 This is the secret that enables Jesus to live the sinless life that we cannot. He lives to cause God joy in every moment. In every moment. Because Jesus did, we can. Remember, the Holy Spirit has been given to us For this very reason. This is why Paul reminds believers in Galatia. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14. Freedom from the law can lead us to live for an audience of one. It happens Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, believers live a new life characterized by love. But it takes intentional life. Otherwise, we fall back into sin. Far from the Christian life being enslaving, it's the only way, the only way to resist the various slaveries offered by the adulation and approval of our world. But this doesn't mean that Christians can do whatever they feel like doing, which itself is just another form of slavery. Rather, serving others with the love of God the Father is the route to escaping bondage and to fulfilling the ultimate intent of the law, a life that glorifies God. Now, here's the rub. Our problem is it's just so cotton-picking easy to slip back into chasing self-interest and self-glory. It isn't just in chaotic times like ours or like those of the judges when the recorder of Israel's history says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges 21, 25b. Matthew tells us that service was a problem for the disciples. The, the men who were with Jesus virtually every day for three years, Right? They struggled to keep an attitude of service. And in chapter 20, we see James and John's mom trying to manipulate Jesus into promising them privileged positions in the kingdom of God at Jesus' left and his right. Needless to say, the other ten young men were hot over that maneuver. It ticked them off. It frosted their shorts. Matthew recounts it in this way. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verses 24 through 28. Now, you think that each of the twelve would have gotten it, right, at that point. That's a, that's a pretty stinging rebuke. But they're like us, slow learners, slow on the uptake. Sometimes we struggle to hear the truth and apply it. So a few days later, after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the disciples find themselves in the upper room for Passover. The jockeying for position starts all over again. While they had secured the room, they hadn't prepared for what would follow. No arrangements for foot washing had been made. As they took their places around the table, none of them were willing to perform that task. One of the things I love about the Bible is how painfully honest it is about our human nature. So what happens next is shocking. The disciples are reclining at table, and and they would have been at the triclinium, which you ate around a low table where you're reclining on your left elbow, your feet out, and you're eating with your right hand, right? Judas is in the position of honor on Jesus' left. John's at the position of honor on his right. So John's almost leaning up against Jesus' chest. Judas has Jesus leaning up against his chest. Do you see what's happening? On top of this, Peter's in the servant's position. But he isn't serving. The meal's underway. Right. There's tension in the air because this business of who's the greatest still hasn't been resolved. What a warm, worshipful, worshipful way to celebrate Passover. Right. Suddenly, Jesus rises, removes his outer garment, picks up a basin towel, begins to move around the table. He washes their feet. Remember, the Midrash, the commentary on the Old Testament, taught that no Hebrew, not even a slave, could be commanded to wash feet. Yet, here's Jesus, their rabbi and master, doing exactly that. He moves from one to another around the table until he comes to Peter. And to nobody's surprise, Peter balks. Not going to wash my feet. Jesus' response is telling. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant isn't greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. John thirteen fourteen through 16. God help us, right? We are so self-focused and have been since the fall. Jesus has to use this logic. If it's true for the greater me, it's true for the lesser you. Sooner or later, apart from God, though, sometimes even when we walk with him, we turn back to self-interest. But it doesn't have to be that way. I hope you've taken that in from the story this morning. God gives us a new nature when we receive and claim Christ's work on our behalf. We can live to please God as we serve those God places before us. 
Jesus did all of this so that we might again come to know the truth about God's person and purpose. His humility on the one hand, his exaltation on the other, paved the way for our salvation and our restoration to God's design intent for his children at creation. That's the remarkable reality that was found in a manger by shepherds. This is the revelation that moved wise men to travel for weeks to see for themselves what God had done. This is the reason Mary was led to surrender to God's purpose. And as Pastor Dave may well tell us next week, to ponder all these things. This is the greatness and wonder that prompted Joseph to lay aside his hurt and anger at the discovery of Mary's pregnancy and to do the unthinkable, to take her in marriage and treat her with all honor, respect, and love. Through Jesus, God creates in us the ability again to live for an audience of one. Jesus Christ, God's humble servant, who is also our Lord and Savior, has modeled for us what this new life looks like. Lord, establish your nature and purposes in us. So, how are you going to live for an audience of one this week? Praise team. I want you to hear again this last part of this hymn in Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let it be so. Brothers and sisters, join with us as we sing praise to Almighty God. Midwinter, all creation grows. 